Caroline Gertler, how are you this evening? I'm great. How are you? I am excellent, and I am thrilled to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this all day. Uh, we were talking earlier. I've been in remote first grade coming back from the holidays. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, I'm going to have an adult conversation tonight about uh, books and editing and, and all kinds of wonderful things and art. <laughs> so we're going to have, a hopefully, a wonderful time. Uh, where I always ask folks to start is I do not uh, summarize other people's biographies and I don't summarize other people's books because I will make a mess of both. Uh, so if you would kind of give a esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of, of your background and we'll go from there. So I grew up in New York City. I was actually born in Connecticut and then my family moved to New York. Um, and I'm the third of four children, which is a very good role in the family in terms of becoming an observer of life. And I always wanted to write. I'm definitely someone who just knew that I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. And I taught myself to read when I was very young um, and just loved reading as a middle grade reader. Um, and then I, I went to uh, college thinking that I was going to major maybe in East Asian studies. I was studying Japanese, actually. Uh, but I also loved English. And I think I was deciding where to study abroad for my junior year, either Japan or Oxford. And I decided to choose Oxford and sort of go that English direction of studying English. And, um, and then I did an internship in publishing. And again, when I went to the career services to look up internships, I was in New York City. Um, there was a choice between, I applied to two publishing internships. One was for adult publishing and one was with children's. And I went to both interviews and at the adult publishing editor was like, oh, you'll just be, this is your filing area. You'll be doing a lot of filing and busy work. And then I went to interview with Christy Ottaviano at Henry Holt. And she was like, well, I don't have an editorial assistant, so you'll be doing editorial assistant work as my intern. And that sort of launched my career in children's books. Um, and I went on to do other things before I came back to being an editor. And then I eventually moved into the writing side. So it's been a long, I mean, I could spend a lot more time telling you the path I took to get there. Um, that's, that's a sort of fast version. Oh, I'd love to, to break down some of that because there there is a lot to unpack there. Uh, before we do that, I know that publicists and editors listen to the show and they like to hear me say that many points of me uh, released here December, I'm uh, sorry, uh, January 12th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, January 12th next week. So here's the finished copy. <laughs> Congratulations on the uh, big launch. That is, we're, I've got so many questions uh, about the book. Uh, and I'm going to ask because I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of children's book editor now becomes author and has to be edited. So I've got lots of questions about some stylistic <laughs> things that I noticed along the way. But uh, I have to ask, you sound like you have a bit of an interest just in everything. Because uh, I know you've got an MA in art history. Is that right? Yeah, so I have an MA in art history. Um, I did not study art history. I went to Columbia for undergraduate, Columbia University. And the great thing about Columbia is that they have this core curriculum, which I know there's a lot of debate now about classics and Columbia, even at that time, was sort of re-examining what it meant to study the classics. But it was really sort of based in this idea of studying classical civilization, literature, um, art, science, kind of a little bit of everything and looking at it in a cross-disciplinary way by forcing you to take classes in different areas. Uh, so for example, we'd be studying the Parthenon in art history while you're reading the Odyssey 
in um, English class and then studying Greek philosophy in uh, philosophy class. So, and you see how those all come together. So to me, I became very interested in the sort of like cross-disciplinary studies, um, but art history was not the main thing. And then I, after college, I ended up spending some time in the art world and getting a master's degree in 17th century Dutch art. I was kind of veering away from my English publishing life to exploring the art and museum world. Um, but then I eventually came back to, to publishing. So I do have a lot of different interests and sort of uh, I, I'm interested in how they meet in different ways and how they intersect. Obviously, that's only going to be a benefit to you as you're launching your author career because of all the, the different topics you'll be able to, to write about. Did you when you were doing that, did you ever or do you operate with, OK, here's my clear goal. Uh, five years from now, I'm going to be here. Or was it just I love every all of these things and I want to passionately pursue all of them and just be fulfilled with the excitement of that, the, the, the benefit that that's going to bring to my life? Yeah, I mean, I think I was at that age, my parents were um, very generous in sort of allowing me to explore that at that time and to be able to do these different things and kind of explore these different paths. I think I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And um, I was lucky to be able to explore in different ways. And um, I think I was sort of looking for a passion and an end goal. And I think I always knew it was writing somehow, but I didn't know how that would fit in. And I think, you know, I sort of, I thought of doing a PhD at one point. I remember the um, tutor I was studying in England at that point, And she said, well, I just don't see you like being the type to sit there and do research all day in a library. I mean, she kind of told me that. And I was like, you know, I, I hadn't really been told that often to my face, like maybe this isn't for you. And it wasn't a very direct way, but I sort of took that to heart and thought it's not really my thing to be a researcher. And um, so, yeah, I think I just sort of had, had to take my time to get to where I felt like I knew what I wanted and how to achieve it. So uh, here's a question that's probably just my own ignorance. Uh, most questions are. Um, but. Uh, how is uh, studying art history, where I assume there's a, a tremendous amount of research and, and, and memorizing of, of artists and facts and just a whole a whole world of knowledge, how would that be different than the research required for a PhD? Um, I guess a PhD is just one small topic. I mean, it's a it's such a narrow topic, and I, I mean, I guess the in the academic work I did do, and not to undersell myself, which I tend to do. Um, but I did it in, in England. I did my master's at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. And again, maybe I don't think anyone from there will be listening, but it's just, I don't think it has the same rigor as an American master's degree in terms of requirements and um, level of detail in terms of research. So I did, I did my share of research, but it was never my thing. So I sort of somehow, I think I wrote about the connection between uh, proverbs and history painting and 17th century Dutch art. So it was actually what sort of intersecting literature and art even then. And so I think I was able to kind of, you know, make it my own thing and not as research based as it needed to be. I mean, I did do some research, but, but um, I'm, I'm not I'm not big in researching. I, I sort of like to do things intuitively and off by the seat of my pants. <laughs> so. You had mentioned that you had taught yourself to read uh, very early on. What, mm -hmm. how, how, how early on are we talking? I don't know. I mean, my, I'm, as I said, I'm a third of four, and so my parents don't have many stories or details about my childhood. Oh. 
I'm pretty sure I was like, I would say certainly by four, because I know when I went to kindergarten, I just turned five and I was already like a good, I mean, I don't know what it means, like a decent reader and writer by that point. Um, so I, it must have been, you know, around four-ish, I think. So it sounds apocryphal now, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I remember because my older sisters, they had these like learn to read books and I sort of vaguely remember maybe, or maybe I have been told that I would pick them up and just look through them on my own. And, and my father also read to us. My father was in academic publishing. So he was a real book person. And my mother also had a writing background. She was sort of an assistant to writers at a soap opera. So I had this house like full of books and people interested in, you know, literature in some different regards. My father was more into history and my mother was into soap operas. Um, but she always provided us with books and reading opportunities. Um, so I was I was very lucky in that sense. Well, that sounds like the perfect marriage. You get all of your factual uh, information, plus the drama you're going to need to bring it to life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that answers lots of the questions I have about many points of me, but we'll... It's <laughs> <laughs> the analysis part of the... <laughs> yeah. um, when uh, when do you start to gravitate toward children's fiction? I mean, obviously, you, you, you looked at the two options and just Henry Holt happened to be the better immediately. But when did you say, oh, yes, middle grade is going to be for me? Or have you decided that? Is this a thing you're going to do? And then next, an adult novel and then maybe something else? No, I'm, I'm committed to middle grade and children's. And I think it really happened. Well, I guess I would say, as I, as I said earlier, my most um, wonderful time as a reader was as a middle grade reader that I just that feeling uh, as an eight to 12 year old, that age group of just reading a book and feeling like you've discovered this amazing new world that is just for you and the excitement of that and just how immersed you get and pulled into these stories. And I remember I'd go to running to my mom and be like, you've got to read this book. It's the best book ever. She never would read them. And I'd leave them on her bedside table, like hoping she'd read them. But uh, so I think that kind of set the stage early on that this was a really rich time of um, literature. And then I don't know that I even I, I don't think I thought about writing for children, even though a lot of my stories probably had. Well, I was a child myself, practically at 19. But um, I think but I think when I, meeting Christy Ottaviano and working at Henry Holt and discovering that world from the publishing side is what sort of made me realize it was a viable option. And I think I still went on and tried to, like, write adult stories and be an adult fiction writer. Um, with the things I was working on. And then I think I was like 24 or so, and I moved back to New York, and I took my first class in writing for children with Amy Hest at NYU. And I guess at that point, I had sort of decided, I think I, I was writing stories with child children characters. And I think at that point, that's when I said, well, I want to write for children. And so I, I took um, an online class with Uma Krishnaswamy, who's amazing. It was probably one of the early days of online writing classes with writers.com before she was at VCFA. Um, so yeah, so then I started to really focus on that and decided I wanted to work in children's book publishing. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, I've sort of toyed occasionally with an adult idea, but I just love this world and I'm very committed to the world of children's books. And, you know, I just, I don't know, I, I maybe I'd write an adult thing someday, but it's not necessarily what I'm interested in pursuing. I'm not looking at this as a stepping stone or anything like that. <laughs> Some people, my, my, 
I don't understand how that would work, although I'm sure there are authors that could explain it to me how uh, um, a couple of middle grade books would be. And now, as you might expect, I'm going to go write romances. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that happens sometimes. But but I do understand taking up multiple passions and, you know, I don't just watch one type of movie or read one type of book. I, I, I like to... Uh, I, I write adult uh, fiction as well as for children. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's I think it's fun to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes I worry that my voice is a little adult in my middle grade. So, to that regard, to that end, maybe it would suit me to do that. But I'm sort of in this world now, and this is where I think I'd like to be, <laughs> as long as they'll have me. Yeah. Um, well, based on, on, on what I've read, I know you've got another book coming out. I think you're going to be around for uh, for quite a while. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to our, our fifth and sixth conversation about uh, the novels you're, you're yet to write. Um, uh, so editorial assistant as an intern, what does that look like and how does that prepare you for to, to go on to become an editor and then eventually an author? So editorial assistant, it means, I mean, back in those days, I was actually typewriting envelopes for Christy. So like she would write an editorial letter and I think she was actually handwriting her editorial letters or her notes. And I would actually be typing them up, not on a typewriter, on a computer. But then we still even had a typewriter where you'd you know insert the envelope and typewrite the label or the envelope. Um, what year are we talking? <laughs> it sounds very ancient, right? This is, early 2000s still. Um, so it was, I was sort of like right at the cusp of when I think publishing started to transform, you know, when it went from being this kind of like more old fashioned feeling where we would have the slush come in and we'd be, you know, we'd have like monthly or weekly meetings where we would gather over lunch in a conference room to open the slush pile and go through it and then send form letters back. I don't think they do that anymore, but uh, so I sort of got to witness the tail end of that in my early days in publishing. So is that like everybody just reading individual slush and then turning them over or is somebody reading it to the group? Yeah, everyone just takes a stack, either the ones that are addressed directly to you or to your boss or, you know, the ones that are just addressed to your editor uh, that we would just divvy up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think being an editorial assistant or an intern, it's it's like an apprenticeship where you assist everything that the editor is doing in order to learn the craft and to uh, learn how to do it yourself. Um, so it's everything from the nitty gritty of uh, paperwork, contract request forms, check request forms, you know, organizing the uh, lists that they have in terms of uh, TI sheets. Now I'm trying to remember all this, it's been so long since I've done it but just all the sort of uh, administrative work that goes into being an editor, as well as um, the editorial work, which is reading manuscripts and constructing editorial feedback and line editing, and then giving that feedback to the editor, to the author and working with them to revise. Um, and then also it's sort of like being the producer of the book because you also get to work with the art department and the marketing department and and those were always such fun times, especially working with Christy and um, on picture books and learning about illustrations and how picture books are put together um, and then working later uh, on novels about jacket art and everything. So uh, you really sort of have a hand in everything as an editor. And um, I was very lucky to 
learn the business from Christy and then from Wendy Lamb at Wendy Lamb Books, Random House. So when uh, did you transition to Wendy Lamb Books and when did you transition from editorial assistant to editor? Well, I, I never made it to full editor. I became associate editor, which is the level below. Um, but I, I really, as much as I loved working on picture books and illustrated uh, things with Christy, who tended to focus more on picture books, novels were really my main passion. And Wendy, um, that's what she did. She just did novels, um, fiction for children, and also was at a bigger house. Um, Henry Holt had just kind of merged with Macmillan and moved into the Flatiron building and was going through a lot of changes, um, but it didn't have a big house feel yet. And I, I don't know how it is now, but Random House was just a very different environment. And I wanted to try, you know, this bigger, more corporate environment um, and also get to specialize in fiction, which Wendy was doing. So I did, I think I spent about three years with Christy and then I moved over to Wendy Lamb and I spent three years working for her. Um, and then I left to mother and and uh, become a docent and write and do all these other things. <laughs> While you were doing that, did you always have one eye on one day I'm going to write my own book? Or were you writing on the side? A hundred percent. I mean, that's I think it was like my dirty little secret that I really wanted to be on the writing side, even though I wasn't. I had it took me a long time to get there, but I think I just I just was like I. Can't, you know, I'd go to SCBWI conferences as an editor, and I feel like I really wish I was in the audience, like taking notes as a writer and like learning the craft more. And I was writing on the side, but I think editing is a wonderful career, but it's it's also a very creative career, and it takes a lot out of you creatively. So I really admire the the editors who manage to do both because I found it too draining creatively to have the time and the space, the mental space for my own creative work. Um, I know there's some that do it well, but I, I found it wasn't working for me to do both. So come um, home after a long day of making creative decisions about books and then, all right, time to unwind by making creative decisions about <laughs> the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so then you, you leave and you, you become mother to two uh, lovely girls who I, I understand are ideal readers now uh, mm -hmm. who help you uh, with your books. Well, you know what, let's, let's, start, uh, let's start there as we begin to pivot to many points of me, because I wanna, I, 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 I'm fascinated by this idea of the editor who becomes the author, who uh, now you have, you know, you've got a tremendous leg up on every other author that you're coming out against this year. Uh, theoretically, right? You, you've been behind the curtain, you know. Um, I, I'm imagining that you have you have secret weapons uh, that I'm going to try and flush out. Um, but how does having your own daughters? How does that in? How does what what do they bring to uh, your process? And also, how do they help you with the characterization of Georgia and your other uh, characters? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think um, when I started writing this book, my older daughter was only. Four, so I wasn't necessarily drawing on who she was then for the character, but I think there there's definitely certain things that she'll read it. And she'll be like, "That's me. That's me. That's me. You took that from me." And I'm like, "Well, maybe, but not consciously." You know, I mean, it's definitely not her, but certainly like the world of 
you know, 10, 11, 12 year old kids and what they're like. I, I mean, and now I'm living with one. So it's like the best time ever for me to really reacquaint myself with that age of, you know, prior to that, I'd be drawing on my own experience and sort of how I remember feeling as a child. And I think that's essentially what, you know, I still would do as a writer is that I sort of think about how my feelings at that age, rather than, you know, using my children's feelings, because I don't really know how they feel inside. I see them from the outside and I can sort of draw on them in terms of external characteristics or interests. But being able to identify even with my own children in terms of how they feel and how they experience life on a moment to moment basis, I have to look to myself and remember how it felt to be in that situation. You know, I think it's that's where empathy comes in in parenting is like understanding what they're feeling and what, why they might be acting the way they are, thinking the way they are. Uh, so I think that's a really kind of interesting aspect of it all, the parenting thing. Well, that's a very writer uh, thing to do. You said something earlier that, that interested me that I wanted to follow up on. You mentioned being the third of four children uh, made you put you in the perfect position to be an observer. How so? Well, I think, you know, my older sisters took up a lot of the air and the space in the room. And so I think, you know, by the time my parents or maybe all parents get to a third, you know, they sort of they've learned how to be parents. They've practiced. Um, they tend to focus or I tend to focus on the older siblings a lot. Um, and I think maybe I was a little bit quieter and more introverted by nature. So I got sort of cast into the role of the good one, the easy one, the observer. And, you know, people I remember sort of being with like family friends and stuff or other family members when I was a kid and they'd all like notice me and be like, she's the one in the corner, like watching this all and taking it all in and like taking notes for the future. And I guess I really was. So um, that's that was kind of my role. And I don't know if it's, you know, position in the family. I, I have noticed with like a lot of other third out of four children that I have met over the years that they have a similar, uh, you know, birth order position in that sense that it kind of like you're not the youngest you're not the oldest you're not in the middle because there's two in the middle really so it kind of puts you in this i don't know i think it's a nice position to be in <laughs> were you indeed uh good and well behaved or was that cover for the rottenness <laughs> you were really getting up to <laughs> well i was until I, my teenage years were a little bit more tumultuous but i was pretty good and well behaved until then fair enough so, okay, so you uh, put editing aside, you're going to go and you're, that's, or you decide to transition to being, I assume, full-time mom. Did I, did I follow that quite right? Yeah, a full-time mom. And I, I sort of said, I, you know, I want to write. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be working on my writing. And I also um, went to the Met to train to become a volunteer educator there, docent. And so that sort of ended up feeling like almost a full-time job the first year of training. They take it very seriously. I mean, coming from having actually been in a full-time job, it didn't feel like a full-time job, but it was like two to three days a week of work. We were volunteer work. And so I was kind of doing all of those, juggling all of those at once. And then um, I, I really became much more focused on the writing after my second child was born. And I think at that point when she was a year and I like sort of had gotten through those early days, I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like I had to become very determined and very clear, like this is what I want in my life. Like I will not be happy unless I publish a book and I become a writer, you know, an official writer, not just someone who says they want to be a writer. And I just was so determined to do it. And I just worked and worked. And, and so it was really a lot of, you know, just kind of mental for me, it was like a real mental game to get myself to this point, which I don't think it's 
as much for everyone. But for me, that was like really, it was like some, you know, a lot of complexity about, you know, imposter syndrome, not worrying about how good something was. I think that's where the editing side kind of has a negative effect because, I mean, it's, it was a positive and a negative because I think in some ways the positive is I, I had the benefit of seeing manuscripts come in that were not in their final form and knowing what manuscripts go through in order to become a final book. You know, I think a lot of people out there who want to write, you see a finished book and you read it and you think, oh, wow, the person just sat down and wrote this and look what came out. And you don't realize, even if you've read about how much work it took or you don't really realize what it takes. I mean, maybe some people do sit just down and just come out with a book and maybe that happens. But I will say there was a, one writer and I won't name names who we worked with who I think came in pretty near perfect. Um, I, you know, but I, but I saw a range of different of different experiences. So I think that was beneficial in terms of realizing like it doesn't have to be perfect. At the same time, I also had very high standards for myself and it's very easy, you know, hard to turn off that internal editor, which is hard for any writer to do, to turn off the internal editor that says this isn't good enough or, you know, this isn't working. Uh, so for me, it was really like learning how to turn that off and just write and whatever came out, came out and I'd fix it later. And, you know, of course, then the fixing it later part is also hard. <laughs> so it's been a real like learning process, I think, especially over the last 10 years of like how to be a writer. Also how to come up with story. I think for me, I would start with a very vague image, maybe a character, a voice, like some really tiny grain of a spark and learning how to take that tiny thing and make it into a whole novel, not just like three pages of pretty writing on a little idea. That was a big process for me also. So. You know, it's 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 been a fascinating experience in terms of you know mental and creative growth and uh, discipline and just really um, wonderful in that regard. Well, presumably, because you had worked with so many uh, authors, um, you you've got a pretty good idea of uh, going into it. What's going to be required of you? What a successful uh, being a successful author. What that attitude entails. What that looks like. So when you switch it on and say, okay, this is this is the moment I'm doing this no matter what, what does that transition look like in, in practical terms? How much time are you spending writing, reading every day? What, what does your life look like at that point? So that's, that's a really good question and, and a very definite answer, which for me came from Sarah Monowski, the author, Sarah Monowski, who wrote um, Whatever After and Upside Down Magic and a bunch of YA books. And... I met, I met her in person, I'd sort of known of her, but it turned out that her daughter went to the same school as my daughter. And we have a very funny story about how we met, but basically when my daughter was starting kindergarten, she kind of took me under her wing. Her daughter was a grade ahead. And she was like, because I, I told her I wanted to be a writer and I was struggling to finish something and get through it. And she said, okay, I'm gonna take you every day. We're gonna go to a cafe across the street from school where they have no internet and we're gonna sit down and you're just gonna write. And so it was amazing. I mean, for I would say for the first six months or something, she just was like, let's go meet at the cafe or we're going to the cafe and we're sitting down and we would talk a lot. And it was, I loved getting to know her as a friend and a person, but also just like that, getting that discipline of like, if you want to write, you bring your laptop and you go and you sit there and you do it. There's not all this like thinking about it and talking about it. It's really the act of doing it, which is, sounds crazy that that's the hardest part, but for me it is. And 
So I think I really sort of got into this rhythm of like, okay, I drop my kids off at school and I go and I do my work and starting to set real goals for myself. Like I have to do 500 words today before I can get up. I have to you know, do, get to this part. I have to do that. And being very like, which I'm not, I'm not good at going back to the whole research thing and being an academic. Like I don't, I'm not a disciplined person necessarily. I sort of like to go as things happen, you know, see as things go and float around and that doesn't really work in real life. So figuring out how to set those definite goals was helpful for me, which not, I mean, not everybody needs it, but I, I did need it. Uh, but at the same time, now that I've gone through that process, I will say like, you know, you always hear, oh, each book becomes its own challenge to write. Like just because you write one doesn't mean that, you know, people say the next one is still hard and it, it's true, but I do think that there definitely was a learning curve for me in terms of like, okay, I know I can do this. I can write a full manuscript and I can revise it 15 times and I can get it to a point where it can get sold and then I can revise it three more times, four more times and I could get it published. And going through that process has given me a confidence to feel like, I think I can do this again. I mean, it's it's scary, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's sort of like you can recall how that feeling is and get back into it even, you know, in, in new circumstances, if that makes any sense. I think I'm... Right. <laughs> Uh, you had mentioned um, that because you had spent so much time as an, an editor and making sure that you're getting your manuscripts perfect uh, and also, you know, um, they're not, you know, they're not your babies. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you love them uh, as, as much as every editor loves a manuscript they work on. But it's, it's, I'm sure it's a little bit different when it's your manuscript, which is why um, writers don't edit their own uh, manuscripts most of the time, the smart ones anyway. Um, so how do you get from that mindset of sitting down to edit to just the drafting stage. So let me get this out. Let it be ugly. Let me get past that voice that says, you missed a comma. Stop everything. Go back. <laughs> or, or whatever your, your punctuation hangout might have been. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's, it's not even a choice because the words, I mean, first of all, I think like writing on a computer is a whole weird thing. Um, and I've always done it on a computer because you're constantly deleting and moving and cutting and pasting. And I mean, at least I am like, as I'm writing, I'm editing, right? I mean, I think most people who type on a computer do. So it's very easy to just quickly type out words and sentences and they're definitely not perfect. Um, and I don't worry too much about the commas and punctuation and all that. I think it's more just moving forward. And I mean, I think part, I, I, I mean, I, again, I, it's, my process is not that, clear cut, like I don't outline and plot and do all that. But I think to me, it's just a, the idea that, you know, I write a couple of pages and then the next writing session, I'll tend to read over what I've done and clean it up and edit and go through. And that just also gets me back into the story and the rhythm of what I've been writing, you know, by going back and making little tweaks and playing around with sentences and paragraphs. And that kind of sparks me again to what I'm writing next because I don't plan it out. So I kind of have to get back into it every time. Um, but I don't, yeah, I think, you know, and as I said, even with the finished book, I could look at it and, you know, re-edit every single sentence. And so it, it, that's why I'm, I'm so grateful and fortunate to have my wonderful editor, Martha Mihalik, and uh, being published now so that somebody else can take it and be like, okay, it's done. <laughs> you know, it's not up to me anymore because if it was up to me, it would never be done. So... And am I, as many points at me, I'm assuming this isn't the first novel you wrote uh, once you got going, or, or, or is it? You, you rewrote it enough times to get it where it needed to be? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I had written, I've had a lot of half-written novels that I had done. Um, not a lot, but a, a quite a few. And then, you know, where I'd sort of give up at page 100 and not really know where it was going, because as I said, I don't plan anything. And I just kind of hope that it'll all get to the end. And then I did write one other book that was sort of a little more YA that I couldn't figure out how to revise. Because as I said, I sort of got to the point where I was like, okay, I just have to finish something. And I finished it. And then I was like, now what? And I just, I couldn't figure out how to revise it. I think I had my second child in that time period. So then when I finally went back to writing again when she was one in 2014, I think I might've looked at that old thing and then I got the first glimmer of an idea for this um, and went through, I, I mean, it, the very first draft of what I would consider would be the first draft of Many Points of Me looks nothing like what it is now. There's a few similarities in terms of premise maybe, but it could be its own book. It's like so different. So I, I basically, I, I'll like write a whole thing and then I'll completely rewrite it and completely rewrite it, you know, from page one, which sounds crazy and maddening. And I don't know if it's, how sustainable that will be going forward. I'm kind of running up against that problem now where I'm like, okay, now I actually have a deadline for this book and I don't have the luxury of spending five years rewriting it. Uh, but that's kind of, yeah, how, I mean, how my process went for this, so. Well, let's, uh, I tell you what, let's take a quick moment to talk a little bit about setting up many uh, points of me, and then let's go through the process of how the book was was created and, and, and revised. Uh, and then I, I, I definitely want to know more about your relationship with Martha Mihalik, um, who I follow on Twitter and mm -hmm. have not yet approached to come on the show. But Martha, if you're listening, please come on the show. We'd mm -hmm. all love to, to hear what you have to say. Um, so many points of me. Let's start. I told you I don't summarize other people's books. The best spot, best spot to start is if you would just give a esteemed audience what do we need to know about many points of of, of me. So many points of me tells the story of Georgia, who's an 11 year old girl in New York City, turning 12, whose father was a famous artist who died um, about almost two years before the book begins, and she is. Um, still figuring out who she's he, who she is after this very sad loss and also what it means to have a father who people kind of still talk about in the present tense and feel like they have a relationship with because they know his art and love his art um, and then also her own um figuring out who she is as an artist she kind of wants to be an artist too and her best friend theo who lives in her building uh, they do art together and so it's sort of feeling like, you know, where is that passion for her now? Um, and her mother is putting on an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art about her dad's work. And in the process of that, Georgia finds a sketch that she believes might be for a painting of her that he never got to finish. And she sets out to prove that that's that it is what she thinks it is, um, because it's sort of a way for her to sort of reclaim her connection with her dad. Um, uh, wonderful story, very uh, um, um, moving, and I, I love the. Uh, I love that it uh, works out that she has to do a self-portrait to uh, for a contest that uh, is is wonderful because that's just the thing she needs to uh, rediscover herself and, and and put herself back together. Um, so, with this, who who would be the ideal reader for this story? Who are you most hoping is going to reach? Oh, I don't know if there's an ideal reader. I think, you know, it's maybe the kind of book. Well, I don't know if it's the kind of book I would have wanted to read. I loved fantasy when I was a kid. So 
Um, I did read realistic, you know, contemporary stories too, but I would have chosen fantasy any time. Does that mean we might look forward to a, a fantasy book by you at some point? I would have loved to write fantasy, but I just, I don't know if, I actually just tried to start writing one um, in the last month and I sort of got three chapters in and I realized that the name of the character like had already been used in another book recently, <laughs> like it wasn't even original. So I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's great, but I would love, I wish I could write it. Um, so and I, and I actually really, I think I, I say this in some of my interviews that I've done on blogs that I, I sort of set out to write an art mystery. Um, and it's, you know, I think I needed to find the heart of it because, it, you know, just writing a surface mystery didn't have enough heart. And so I think in discovering the heart, it turned into this more emotional story of, of grief and about personal connection and relationships and self-discovery. But that's not what I set out to write. I think that's maybe just my natural wheelhouse as a writer is to explore these emotions um, and feelings. So it's it's an interesting thing, sort of figuring out, you know, what to write and what the story is that you want to tell and all that. Well, I'm fascinated as a, as a avowed pantser. Um, when you sit down to write a mystery, I assume you, if nothing else, you have to know who done it to get going or, or know that you just start to sit down and just go for it. That's the problem is, as I've said many times in this interview, I don't research and I don't plan and I don't plot and I don't know how to apply my logical brain to story, um, at least not in the beginning. So therefore, no, I was not the mystery aspect. There is a slight mystery aspect in here, but it's definitely not the the main thing. And you can see, I think, from my mystery plot that I'm not necessarily cut out to be a mystery writer, but uh, in terms of a genre sense, but it, I do like, like, I think all books are mysteries in a sense. And I think that the best books end up having a sense of like wanting, wanting to find out what happens. There's something that you need to keep turning the pages to the end to know and to understand and to feel. And I don't know if I achieve it here, but I think that the books that I love to read, I, I feel compelled to keep reading because I want to know something and not necessarily a mystery in the sense of, you know, the genre of mystery, but just there's something that needs to be discovered or uncovered or revealed or wrapped up or you know, there's got to be something that keeps you turning the pages. Like to me, that's the main thing with books is like what, you know, something that wants you, makes you want to keep turning the pages. So my ideal reader, I guess, I, I don't know what the reading experience is like for a reader of this because I have no sense of distance or obje objectivity, but I would hope that if, if I found if I heard that a kid wanted to keep turning the pages of this book and get to the end and they really did that would be the most satisfying result to me um the worst feeling is when you don't want to continue reading a book and you're bored by it and I, I hope that doesn't not the case with my book but I don't know <laughs> at this moment uh in time have you heard back from any young readers or am i talking to you on just the verge of that that feedback on its way i know I, I mean i would love to hear from young readers i've heard more feedback from adults um and it's hard to know but you know my own daughter is a tough critic uh she also really loves fantasy and you know so she, i mean she i she did the first time she read it she was sweet and she was like oh i you know she said it was addictive and that was her way of like saying i she wanted to know what happened but since then she's become a little coy with me about it you know that it's like well it's georgia is so depressing and sad and boring and i'm like okay um so we'll see if i start to hear from young readers i would love that but you know we'll see what their reactions will be i hope they'll be genuine i don't know about uh, about boring 
<laughs> I think I think you're gonna hear much uh, much 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 different feedback <laughs> going forward. Um, you have said elsewhere that the, the the three of the big inspiration touch points for the book are from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frank Weller, uh, masterpiece and Under the Egg. Is that right? Yeah, I would say. I mean, um, all books that are related to the Met somehow. Um, and that was really important to me because of my connection with the Met as a volunteer there. And um, I'd started working there in the bookstore originally when I had, after I finished my master's degree uh, while I was looking for jobs in publishing. So I really felt like it's a, such a special place. And I love these books that sort of bring in art in some way, and especially a place like the Met, which I just think is a fascinating um, institution and place to spend time, especially behind the scenes. So um, originally I had sort of like a caper scene in here where she's like breaking in to try to get her uh, art submission back and ends up like running through the back corridors and hallways. And that didn't really fit in in the book in the end, but um, I sort of like the idea of, you know, having access to these places in a behind the scenes kind of way. So while you, while, while you were there, were you constantly kind of casing the place, but for fiction purposes, like eventually I'm going to write a caper here. So I got to make mental notes about. Uh, <laughs> that story. Bit, maybe. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, not as consciously as I could have perhaps it definitely, you know, the, those moments where I'd be in the Met, you know, before it opened or on the days it used to be closed to the public on Mondays. And so when I got to be in there on those days, like that was just the feeling I I mean, I don't necessarily capture it directly in the book, but that was kind of something that was very inspiring to me, for sure. This uh, art contest that, that, that Theo and Georgia uh, enroll in, in uh, for a portrait, is that a real thing? Are you pulling that from an actual thing that happens there at the Met? Yeah, there's um, a PS art. It's um, for New York City Public Schools. It's not quite the way that I describe it in the book. It's not the exact uh, thing. It's called PS art. It's not, I think I call it NYC. The art. So I didn't want to copy it, you know, the real thing, but I made up my own sort of version based on it. But they do, um, I think it's from kindergarten through 12th grade, New York City public schools. And I think that the way it works is the teachers, art teachers can submit, you know, to this contest and they art actually does get put on display in the Met in the spring. It's up there now. I think I posted on my Instagram or my website, you know, a picture of some self portraits that are on display currently. So I think it's a pretty amazing thing. And then also Scholastic runs um, a contest and they put up, they also have an exhibition of student artwork every year in the Met. So I'm assuming uh, since I'm talking to you before the book is officially available uh, to people who aren't special like me, mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that, that this countdown to when you're going to go to the bookstore you worked in at the Met and see a copy of Many Points of, uh, uh, sorry, Many Points of Me Available, right? And they, they have to carry it. It's it's it's. Well, a, I, I don't know. It's me. I have to. It's it, because of the times we're in. You know, I would have been in there with a copy already, and I still do have to go in. I used to know the buyer and everything when I worked there, but I don't know them so much now. But I hope they'll carry it. That would be pretty cool. I mean, they have sold other Met-related books, uh, like I think all the ones you mentioned. You know, mixed up files, masterpiece, and under the egg. I think they've carried those all in the bookstore. So that would be pretty neat to have it sold there if they feel like it's enough of a link to the Met. 
Well, that is my prediction and my hope for you is that one day when uh, quarantine is over and we're all spending more time in, in bookstores again, um, you'll be able to go in there and you'll see those three books available and then right next to them. And of course, you know, we were talking before about you know, regrets or I think, oh, I could have done more with the meta. I could have put more into it. You know, you always think about I did, there's more to be done. So, um, yeah. We'll just add a T at the end and then your issue and many points have met done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if anybody from Green Willow is listening, you can, for the reissue, you can have that idea for free. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming that the, the start of the book now is very different than where you started originally. At what point did you pick where you're going to start that it's going to be two years? And, and I'm going to ask some questions um, about how you wrote the book. And I want to be very, very clear that when I ask these questions, I don't have some answer of, oh, here's how I would have done it. I would have added zombies and made a mess of the thing. So that, that's not why I'm asking these questions. But I, I do want to know why you made the decisions to better appreciate the artistry that went into the, the novel. So why is two years past the death of George's dad the, the, the good spot to start? And why is 12 the right age for Georgia? That's a, that's, that's a terrific question. And you know what? I could have done it a totally other way. I think I did have it at different points that he that he died when she was younger and she didn't really remember him. You know, it was sort of figuring out the balance of like, how soon did it happen? How much did she know? Because if you lose a parent as a child, which fortunately I have not experienced, you know, if it happened when you're two, you don't really have memories of the person. You know, so sort of playing with what the time frame and what would be kind of most effective, not to sound cold about it, in terms of like how she would feel and where she would be in her process of grieving and her um, awareness of who he was. You know, I think if he had died when she was a baby and she hadn't had any memories of him, it would have been a very different book in some ways. Um, so I wanted her to have those like tangible memories that she has in the book of like being with him when he painted and knowing what it was like to be in his studio and grow up in his studio and having experienced that and having, you know, been there when he started some of his great art and wondered about her role in it and whether she had a role and hoping she had a role and then finding that she might have in some way been more of an inspiration than she thought at first. So it was sort of just figuring out about, you know, age and consciousness. And as far as 11, 12, I guess that's just sort of the key age of middle grade for me in terms of, you know, when somebody is still, um, a child, but just sort of on the cusp of entering the next stage in terms of teenagehood and puberty and uh, romantic relationships and all of that. So it's kind of a real discovery point, I think, um, for children. So I find that age very interesting. Yeah, it said something, um, I, I don't remember where you said it, maybe it was in some, somewhere in the all the stuff I read. Uh, uh, about you online and, and, and preparing. Uh, you had written that uh, Georgia's loss um, is going to offer an opportunity for change and for deeper self-knowledge. And that's how she's going to, to come to age, by coming to terms with this loss and kind of reconstructing herself. Does any of this, without getting personal, I never want to ask, you know, I'm not Barbara Walters. I don't want to ask what's the saddest thing that ever happened to you. But when you're writing a novel about loss, is there a loss of your own that you're that you're dealing with while you're doing this? Um, 
you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that because I haven't experienced loss like this. Um, but there definitely was a time in my life when I started writing this that I was feeling loss within my own family, you know, coming from a somewhat large family, you know, just complicated family relationships. And I guess my older sister was going through a divorce and there was other stuff, you know, the way our family was feeling broken up as we were all branching off and going in different ways. And um, I won't go too deeply into it, but there was like the sense of loss for me that, you know, I was exploring, I think, through here that I sort of was like, I can channel this feeling that I'm having about what's happening in my own life in terms of loss and what that means into this experience. And so, you know, I hope that it comes across um, strongly enough and, you know, that it, that it makes, you know, that it works, I guess, um, because it's not something I've experienced directly. So, but I think that you know, it's legitimate to write about feelings that we have in other ways and put them into fictional situations, I guess. Did you feel that uh, when you had finished the draft uh, that it had brought you some sense of closure? Um, again, without getting specific and, hey, spill your guts. <laughs> closure for myself. I mean, I think, um, it, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say for my own life it brought me closure, but I feel like I got to know Georgia and her situation and her life as her own character and this own this other fictional situation you know, it became her fictional character and world became its own sort of real situation to me that I was figuring out what her story was. So it's not it wasn't necessarily about me in that way. It was really what makes sense for her as a character and and her life, which um, I, I feel like I found closure with. That's uh, no, that's a, being a very responsible author. Make sure it's the <laughs> the character that needs the the closure more than the than the author. That makes sense. Uh, quick nerd question: uh, Theo's spirited dragon is named Crypto. Our newest Superman fan. Where'd that come from? Well, that's you know, I I feel like I should have a better answer, but I just um, he had other names before, and actually that's something I can I can attribute to my daughter. She didn't like his original name, so. I was like, I sort of pulled it out of left field a little bit, which, you know, I, again, I hope it seems authentic enough to readers who are fans. But now that's, um, you know, I guess my brother and I sort of were into superheroes when we were kids a little bit, maybe, but not like nerd wise, just kind of on a superficial level, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I'm somewhere between superficial and hardcore nerd. I'm, I'm always finding myself in the middle because I'll I'll go to a comic convention and talk. Well, I used to uh, back in the day, uh, and I, I talk to the really hardcore people, and they 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 immediately see through me. They're like, "You're a poser. You you don't know the the, the truly deep history of, of of the character." But then if I'm talking to somebody who's a casual fan, and and and, and I can see their eyes kind of glaze over, I'm like, "Oh, I've gone too nerdy for you." So I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm definitely on the superficial end. If you're in the middle, like I'm, you know, yeah. What do you think when you finish your fantasy novel? Maybe, maybe a superhero book at some point. <laughs> maybe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you to commit to like five different books by the time we're done, and then you're gonna, yeah. have, <laughs> you're gonna have your, 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 your project sorted. Uh, so okay, let's talk about your path to publication. At what point do you, um, your literary agent is Sarah Crow, right? Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, is it traditional? You go and you find a literary agent, and she finds you the deal that you want, or or what's how's the process work? Yeah, so um, 
I mean, I guess having worked in publishing, I knew how it all worked and I knew I'd want to find an agent. So even when I was still in the business, I was getting to know agents, you know, through their submissions to my boss. And I was starting to get to know some of them on my own too, like as I was trying to rise up to become an editor myself. And Sarah was one of the agents that I connected with back then. I always loved her submissions and her authors and her as a person. We, she's someone I got to go out to lunch with a couple of times as a sort of business lunch. Um, and so when I left, I sort of had this like list in my head of who I'd want to represent me in my dream life of you know, becoming a writer a year later, which of course ended up being 10 years later, but um, she was always at the top of my list. So I, when I finally felt ready to find an agent, uh, she was the first person I submitted my manuscript to. Um, and there was a little bit of a process about, it still took a year before I actually ended up signing with her. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, an interesting process. And I think it definitely helped that I had had some inside experience going through that process. So, um, yeah, it was. So with that inside experience then, and, and, and Sarah Crow, if you're listening, we would also <laughs> love to, to chat with you sometime. Um, what, uh, how do you, with the experience that you have with, you know, this, um, with, with your, with, with what you're bringing to this, how do you go about deciding who's going to be the ideal agent? And then what makes Sarah Crow uh, your first choice? Well, I think it was really having connected with her um, when I was in the business, when I was in the industry. And then, of course, she's had this meteoric rise. She's become a superstar over the past 10 years. Um, so I guess and I've just loved all the books that she's represented, all the authors that she's represented. And you know, continue to sort of aspire to what she, the authors that she works with. Um, and then she is at Pippin Properties, which again is like a dream agency in terms of like a boutique children's literary agency. Um, so I think, you know, it just, it just was the, she was the person that felt right to me in terms of who I would trust to find the right home for my book and um, have a connection with working with. Uh, in terms of author-agent relationship, which even though I had been on the other side of publishing and editorial, I didn't, I, I, that, that relationship is still a little bit new to me. You know, what is it like, what does it mean to be the author and have an agent? Like, I'm still figuring that out, I think, even though that's something that is new. Um, but it's been wonderful and I'm so grateful to her. I mean, she um, helped me revise this. We spent a few months revising it before we even submitted to editors. So she helped make the book even better than it was when we signed together or when I signed with her I should say. Well I would think you would be uh, an ideal client with your background because you you know you're she's not going to have to I assume hold your hand as much and explain how things work to you because you, you've been there you know. Yeah I mean the business has changed a lot though I mean it's been 10 almost now 11 years since I last worked in the business so I think like you know, a year or two after I had left, I was still really on top of things. And I, you know, I still do have that sense, but I think that things are very different now. So, um, but I've, you know, I have other writer friends who I've kept in touch with, you know, I meet within a writer's group. And so I've heard a lot about, you know, how they're, they're seeing the business change. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely, I think helps that I have that background. It gives me a little bit of perspective, but it's still different being on the other side, being a writer, being an author, you know, you're not on the inside. <laughs> So, you, you know, you still have that feeling of like, 
they're doing things behind the scenes and you don't really know what's happening that authors sometimes talk about. But I'm also grateful not to be the one doing that behind the scenes work because I know it's hard work. It's really time consuming and, um, and uh, you know, I have all the admiration for people who work in publishing because it's, it isn't, you know, we, we always used to joke, oh, it's not brain surgery, like nobody's going to die on the operating table, but yet these things still, you know, are taken very seriously and, and people put passion and love and hard work into it. And so I'm very appreciative of that. Well, what are some of the uh, biggest changes that have been brought to your attention in, in the 10 years since uh, you were in the room where it happens? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess to me, the mo the biggest thing that I would think of that comes to mind is just you know, everything becoming electronic in terms of like submissions. You know, we used to get the boxes in from the agencies, like each agency would submit manuscripts, you know, printed out manuscripts in a box. That's how they would submit things now. And obviously it's all electronic. So I just, I feel like if I went into a publishing house now like I'd be like where's the orange box from Curtis Brown and the this color box from you know you know each agency and what their box looked like and I guess that's all gone um you know I think that when I left the industry in like 2010 people were really worried about ebooks taking over and what that meant uh but I think that actually like print sales are still very strong and that hasn't what they thought back 10 years ago was going to happen hasn't necessarily I mean maybe now with COVID and quarantine, it's um, ebook sales are back up, but there was like a real feeling of like print books might not exist anymore. And I, that doesn't seem to have happened. So that's good. <laughs> well, um, okay. So the editor gets edited. Um, I assume you have uh, no chip on your shoulder. You, you're not coming in saying, hey, I've, I've got the editing expertise. Why are you revising my book? It's, it was perfect, what you do? Um, so how are you working with uh, Sarah? And how is it working then with, with Martha to get these different visions and corporate? I mean, are you, oh, what's what's the way to ask this without, um, but um, let me just let the chips fall where they may. Uh, you come in and you've got a very specific vision for your book. And then I assume, uh, that uh, both of them have got some uh, some visions to, to to bring to bear as well. How are you navigating that? And do you prefer to have two uh, experts coming in and, and and backing your play and 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 elevating your game, or do you prefer back when it, you were the you were the person that, that that made the call and the shout? Oh, I'm so thrilled that they're making the call. I think part of the hard part for me about being an editor is that I, as I've said many, many times now, I don't love to plan or be logical. So to be the person, the editor who says, okay, this is ready, you know, to go to print. Like that to me is so scary to be the one to make that decision. And I remember I had such enormous respect for Wendy Lamb when I worked for her because we'd be doing drafts of books with an author and I'd be like, it's good, it's great, you know? Like, and she's like, no, I think it can go further. We could do another round. We could do oh, one more round. And that level of being able to read a manuscript multiple times and like still figure out how to help the author revise it to get to another level and to keep going, you know, like that, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't have that in me when it came to someone else's work. And I, I just feel so grateful and lucky now to have somebody else do that to my work because it's um, it's just been an amazing experience. Um, 
And in that sense, maybe I am, a, you know, a great client or person for them to work with because I'm like, please edit me and I'll take all your suggestions. Sure, anything you want me to do, I'll change. You want me to rename the character? Great. You know, I'm very open to suggestion because I, I, I trust their their opinions, their expert opinions, um, and yeah, I just maybe it's also that they're a great fit, and so it's been a it's been a wonderful process uh, working and revising with them. And then, um, oh, what was the ah, the mm -hmm. next question I had went right out of my mind, but I did want to ask you an extremely nerdy question that I normally wouldn't get quite this nerdy, but because I'm talking to you and because I know that you have a very specific way that you're using language, I'm just going to pick a random uh, sentence, although this is something I picked up as, as a style. Uh, throughout, so I'm looking at page 65 early enough that we're going to avoid uh, spoilers, and I'm going to look at one or two sentences. So she's there, period, almost all the time, period. Uh, this is on the what about third paragraph down, although I'm reading the uh, advanced reader's edition, so I hope the answer isn't, oh, we, we corrected that before the final version. <laughs> thanks. thanks hey. for that. But I noticed that similar structure throughout of sentences that are kind of broken up in odd places that kind of give greater resonance. That's the one I'm picking because it was short and, and easy. Uh, but there's something, there's like one, I think, on the next page. Um, but throughout, I, I noticed these fragmented sentences, which, which interested me because it's, a, it's an interesting style choice. And again, like I said before, no, I don't, I'm not uh, saying any of this is, oh, I, I could have seen this done differently. I just want to know why that choice works because it does work it, it it resonates greatly is that a specific style of of yours from the start is that an affectation <laughs> well thank you for pointing that out i'm like no i don't think that was corrected in the final because i don't know think i would have seen it as a mistake so oh, maybe... i don't think it was a mistake at all um like I, I say, it, it gives that 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 short what, what could have been just one sentence that much more oomph because it's broken up there and because I've got to take the, the the pause in between saying it beyond what just a mere comma would do. Yeah, I mean, I think with voice, I really like. I think I'm very conscious, and maybe I'm overly conscious, which I don't know of breaking up sentence structure. You know, like sometimes I I feel like I might tend to write long, you know, um, sentences with tons of sub clauses or whatever, I don't remember the grammatical terms. And so I think I end up being very conscious to try to break up the sentence structure, you know, to have a long sentence followed by a little fragment followed by a one word, you know, and just kind of try to break that up so it doesn't become too monotonous in terms of voice. Um, and then maybe also just to try to capture the feel of, you know, how for emphasis, you know, by having those little three word sentences, four word sentences kind of creates emphasis or, uh, yeah, so I guess it is a stylistic thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, now that, now that I'm reading that sentence, I'm like, oh, that does sound strange, <laughs> so. Well, no, a bit strange, a bit strange. As a reader, especially for kids and not to speak down to them, but I think that the way that the words look on the page, and I think Green Willow does a great job, as and a lot of publishers do, of having you know lots of space and air on the page. But I, I'm very aware of that and how 
you know, overly heavy things could be and how that could sort of turn you off as a reader, as adult and or child, you know, to have too dense of, um, have, you know, the text be too dense, overly dense. And I actually worried when I first saw this, it's like, oh, maybe these chapters seem too long. It seems too heavy, too overdone. So I'm, I think I'm so worried about going in that direction that maybe I'm trying to go more in the other direction. I don't know. Do you have any kind of like voice rules where this is no paragraph will exceed this many lines, no <laughs> chapter will exceed this many words? Uh, no, no, but I will say that feeling like this one might have been overdone, I'm sort of now trying to maybe go a little spare in my next one and, you know, just trying to be a cleaner writer in terms of uh, word choice and not having extraneous words. I mean, I'm so admiring of an author like Kate DiCamillo, which is the most spare writing but so evocative like someone like that i just i'm in awe of um how she does that so you know sometimes i remember when i was in my college writing class somebody snarkily pointing out that i had like 20 colors you know like green blue red the green chair and the blue table and the red walls like on one page there were like 10 different colors you know named <laughs> and it made me forever self-conscious of not doing that so every time i write a color now i am like do i need to have this do i need to say the brown wooden desk no like you know so i, I do think about those things when i especially when i'm revising or going through it so watching our listing saying, but I like colors. I want as many colors as I can. Why is that not a good idea? Why? Um, well, I mean, it could be redundant. Like one of the example I just gave, like a brown wooden desk. I mean, I guess a wooden desk could be painted a color, in which case then you might want to say the blue painted wooden desk. But otherwise, wood is naturally brown. So to say it's a brown wood is maybe redundant. Uh, possibly. I mean, it might not be, but so, you know, you want to avoid redundancies and clunkiness, you know, it, it, it takes away from the emotion, maybe, if you overburden your language with filler or description that's not necessary. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the explanation for why, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, of course, it's funny because in this book, it was about there is stuff about color consciously. I mean, she's somebody who, you know, sort of sees colors for people and um, color is part of the story in that way. So I probably should have done an edit where I just looked at every mention of color and <laughs> they were all consciously enough decided and included. That would have been a good edit to do, but it's too late now. <laughs> Well, this uh, question of, of author voice, and I'm seeing that our, our time is uh, rapidly uh, running away from us. It, it always goes so fast. Where'd it go? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did want to ask, are there any other uh, specific stylistic, I mean, we were talking about author voice, which of course is always a tricky thing to tackle. How would you define your author voice or would you? Are there some things that you can look at on a page and like, oh, that that even though I haven't read this book before, it's obviously one of mine. I recognize it like from another life. Um, I mean, probably I don't you know. It's so funny. Voice is such an interesting question. And I actually once had to give an SCBW talk, SCBWI talk on voice. And I didn't realize how complicated it was until I did it. And there's different ways to approach it because you can talk about it like, you know, in terms of like syntax and, you know, person and tense, you know, those aspects of voice. But then there's also 
something that's less tangible, I guess. Um, and it does come down again to the word choices you make, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, and then there's all the talk about finding your voice. And so, you know, but yet a voice is so internal and it's so much essential to who you are. So I hope that I have a distinct voice that I could pick something up. I mean, it's actually fun. I have a drawer here that I need to look through, you know, old stuff and kind of picking it up and being like, oh, this is this is actually not so bad or, you know, but I don't know that the voice is so drastically different. I think that there's something essential that's always there, um, you know, for an author. That makes uh, all the sense in the world. That's, <laughs> that's why we come back to the same authors uh, that we love. We need to, it's almost like a, like a favorite flavor. That's, that's what we we're hoping to get. Uh, well, I've got, uh, I think, three more questions. We'll call it a night. Is that reasonable? Totally. So, Steve, uh, notice I have to ask, because I, I try never to fail uh, to ask everyone. Uh, Caroline Gertler, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Well, you know, I thought about how I would answer this question because I know that you do ask this and I will say I have not, but I don't discount the possibility that I might or that I have without realizing I have. And actually, I didn't, I didn't realize you asked about ghosts because the other night I had this very creepy experience where I was sleeping and I heard someone whisper, Caroline, in my sleep. And it really freaked me out where I was like, you know, it kind of jarred me awake. So maybe there was a ghost. I don't know. You probably thought it was one of my children coming into my room in the middle of the night. Maybe it was Diamond just playing very quietly from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I don't think I have. I can't vouch to say that I have, but I might. So. I think you need to listen very carefully, and hopefully the ghost will be, you know, helpful and, and, and mention... Um, ideas for future novels that would be tremendous. Yeah, I, do, I do try to think about it when I go to sleep at night. It puts me to sleep at night. If I try to think about my work in progress, I fall asleep immediately. And I hope that I'll process something in my sleep. But I do not write up. I don't wake up with revelations. So, but I'm sure that something's happening there. Well, as of yet, but now that you're going to be a twice published author, uh, any uh, any muse out there with revelations to share with the world knows that you're a good conduit. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, something else that uh, I had read that I wanted to make sure I ask you about is because you know you're writing about art, you 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 you've got a background with art history. You've been giving tours with the Met, but you say that you uh, can't draw to save your life. Um, have you at any point attempted to transform yourself into an artist? And is that something that's possible, say, for somebody that wanted to be a writer but doesn't have a, a natural pro, uh, proclivity for that? Do you think it's possible that there are steps you could take to transform yourself? Is it, is it possible that someone who doesn't feel like they can write could become an artist instead? Or? Yeah, somebody that doesn't have a, a natural ability to write struggles with it greatly or somebody right. that can't draw. Is there a way to become Oh, oh, I thought you meant would someone, a writer, become an artist? Um, so you're saying someone who feels like they don't have a natural proclivity to write, could they become a writer? It's, that's part. Of, that's an interesting question. I think, gosh, um, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I did have an experience once in college where I met someone who runs like a drawing center, and he was like, anybody can learn how to draw. You know, you just look at the thing and don't look down at your paper and just let your hand move and you'll, you know, and I, I, I don't, I mean, 
it doesn't seem to work for me. I don't know that I could become an artist. I, I do like doing process art with my kids, you know, where we take different materials, like you put washi tape down and then you use tempera. I mean, yeah, put washi tape and tempera paints and kind of make, you know, sort of abstract things. Um, that's fun to do, to play with color and whatever, but I could never draw a good image of a person. And I, I never want to say you could never, or I could never, but um, as far as learning to write, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, again, it's, I, I mean, I think anybody can learn how to write. I think you have to have the desire and the drive somewhere inside of you if you want to do something creative, right? Like you can't just say, I want to be a writer and then, you know, you have to, there has to be such a strong drive that you practice it enough that you get to be able to get to the point of doing it well, right? So I think, you know, if I really wanted to learn how to draw a figure, I guess I could practice enough that maybe I could get there. But I haven't tried because I don't really have that drive. Um, what was it that uh, brought that, that drew you to art that you wanted to be involved with art without having a desire to to be an artist? Um, yeah. That's, a, that's another, so many great questions you have. Um, I think I'm just a very visual person, even though I don't do art. Um, I enjoy looking at it. I love colors and patterns and textures and images. Um, I'm definitely a visual, a visual person, you know, in terms of that stuff. And then also I process through reading, you know, I don't process auditorially as well. Like even having this conversation with you, I'm like, wait, you know, I have to make sure I'm listening and processing what you're saying. So, you know, like, for example, if I was in a lecture in school, I would have to really take, I'd have to write down everything the professor was would say in order to process it, because if I just listened, I wouldn't process. I had to, like, have a visual representation of what was happening, too. Um, so I think I just was, I'm just drawn to art in a visual sense. And I do feel like when I talk about art that I'm somewhat of an imposter because I don't really know what it's like to make art. And the people who do know how to make art or who have tried to make art have a leg up in terms of discussing art because they really understand the process. You know, like I can talk about writing and, and talk deeply about the process because I know what it's like to compose words and, and write, but I don't really know what it's like to paint. So I sort of feel a little bit out of my depth when I'm talking about, you know, analyzing a piece of art um, in that sense. I tell you what, next time we do this, I, I prefer to write all of my questions down so that they're <laughs> nice, polished, and you don't get all this uh, talking in circles flab uh, that I've been doing the entire conversation. I said, next time I will write perfectly constructed questions, and then you'll be able to read them, and we'll both be uh, <laughs> 100%. No, I love this. I mean, it's, I, if, but if you send them to me, as I said, I hate doing research, so then I would look at them, and I'd be like, oh, I can't think about this. I'll just do it off the cuff. So no <laughs> winning. <laughs> 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 Here, uh, no, this has been very enjoyable. So, thank you very much uh, uh, for making the, the time. Where can esteemed audience find you online? Get more information about you. Follow you on Twitter, all that good stuff. Yes, I am. I have a website, carolinegertler.com, and there you can find the links to my Instagram, which is also Caroline Gertler, and my Twitter is cm Gertler. And Twitter is actually something I've really learned how to enjoy this past year. Um, so I'm finding it really fun to kind of get to know other writers and um, this community on Twitter. It's It's been really great.
Everybody can uh, reach out to you on, on Twitter and you'll be excited to have all of your, your new friends from the show. Yes, and there's so many great 20 wonders. I think you're talking to some other of them, but it's been great to get to know them to this community of 21 debut authors coming up this year. So, oh, who have you, if you, if you don't, if you want to plug some of them, who are you chatting oh. with who is debuting? And then all of you, if you're listening, get in touch. Let's, I, <laughs> I'd be happy to chat with you as well. Well, I could chat out some names, but I don't want to miss anyone. But um, some of the great middle grades coming up in the next couple of months, Christina Lee, Close to the Universe, Megan Freeman's Alone, um, Kate Albus, A Place to Hang the Moon, Alyssa Wishengrads, Vertigree Pawn, uh, Yvette Clark, Glitter Gets Everywhere. Um, I'm trying to think who else I've been connecting with. And then um, Jessica Vitalis has a book coming up in the fall, The Wolf's Curse. And there's another Met-related book coming too from Melissa DeSori. J.R. Silver has something to say, which is supposed to come in 2022. So I'm very excited for that because of course I love Met and art-related stories. So I'm excited to read someone else's. That'd be, uh, yeah, that, that you are in good company so you're all supporting each other through through twitter and uh, and through this uh, strange time of, of promoting new releases during the i think we're on lockdown again i don't know what we're calling this i don't know <laughs> we'll see what we're happens. on lockdown at the kent house I don't know. The bookstores will be up the next week go to a bookstore and see my book on a shelf that's all i'm hoping to get to before we go into any further lockdowns but we'll see <laughs> At least I have my, my copy here. I'm very grateful and feel very fortunate to have gotten to this. Are you holding a uh, virtual launch party? or I, I keep sneaking in questions. I'm terrible about this. <laughs> I, wow, call it. It's done. But but are you? What, what, what thing is are you? I have, I have a virtual launch on January 27th. Shakespeare & Co. is hosting it. Um, and it's, I really am doing it because people were saying, oh, what are you going to do for your book? Are you going to have a party? And more of like friends and family type. So I was like, well, I guess I'll organize something to kind of placate the masses who are begging to attend a party celebrating me, which is so not my cup of tea. I'm like the last thing, you know, I guess I'll get to do it from this chair in this room instead of having to be in the room with all the people. And Kind of hiding in the corner i'll get to be hide be hiding behind my computer screen so we'll see how that goes thank, carolyn thank you again for uh for making the time and for being such an excellent guest i'm looking forward to your next book uh do you have any any are you able to say anything about the next book at this point or just that we should be aware that it's coming i well my editor won't like this answer i would say something if i could say something but i even up until Today, if you said, what's many points of me about? I would say, I don't know. I mean, if someone, you know, I have to say some things you're asking me and I'm speaking to your audience, but um, I don't know yet. So yes, I hope that you will see a next book and it will be there and I'll have, and I'll know what it's about by the time it publishes. So <laughs> another middle grade standalone literary. So. Yeah. When you know, um come back. We'll talk about it, and we'll, we'll have another fascinating conversation. Uh, esteemed audience, as always, get uh, more interviews with um, uh, writers, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.